Uh, Mark 12, verses 28 through 34, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark 12. One of the scribes came up to Jesus and heard him disputing with one another, and seeing he, Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus heard that the scribe answered wisely, he said to the scribe, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. The Almighty One, maker of heaven and earth, for whom and through whom all things were created, you have given us your Son, because as we confess today, we have sinned in thought, in word, in deed, and we desperately need a Savior. Father, we come to you and, and we pray that you would illumine our minds by your Spirit through the proclamation of your word, that we may glorify the Father and we may magnify Christ by living lives that are Christ-like in thought, word, and deed. But Father, we confess that even though your Spirit is working and moving and convicting in, uh, in our lives, we fall short. We love you imperfectly. And we thank you that your love and your grace and your mercy are abounding. Father, we come to you also because we are weak, but you are strong. And you have called us to cast your cares on you. Father, right now we lift up our sister in Christ, Linda Burkhart. Lord, as she is facing the final days of her life, Lord, I pray, pray, pray that you would give her peace, that you would give her body rest. And as she told me, she longs to be home. Not her comfortable place here on earth, but the glories of her eternal home in the presence of Christ and all those who have put their trust in him. Father, I pray for Virgil and Eleanor as they um, battle uh, his brain tumor. I pray for Andy Rossi as he battles cancer. I pray for those of our brothers and sisters who are not yet ready to return to gathering inside with us. Father, we are not whole without our brothers and sisters. And I pray that you would give us opportunities to love them well. Father, we also pray for the upcoming election. We confess that we have put our, our 
faith and our hope in men who are not worthy. For we are not worthy. We are men of unclean lips, and we dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Forgive us for putting our faith in political parties, in political promises, and Supreme Court justices. Father, lay on our heart the need to be like Jesus, to trust the God who is sovereign, to recognize that our brothers and sisters throughout this world and throughout church history have not trusted in kings, in princesses, princess, princes or princesses, parliaments, congresses, Supreme Court, or the White House. But they have put their faith in a kingdom which is unmovable, whose king is Christ Jesus. Whoever sits be at the right hand of the Father and prays for his people. Remind us that how much we need our Savior Jesus. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to hear your word. May your spirit take it and plant it deep within us that we may um, know Christ better and make him known. In his precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We continue in our book of Mark, in chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Uh, Jesus has been tested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and now he faces another test. To begin, you can be devout, and you can be pious, and you can be religious and go straight to hell. Just like John Wesley. John Wesley, if you looked at him from the outside, you would think that... You, if you looked at John Wesley from the outside, you would be convinced that he had a place in the kingdom of heaven. His father was an Anglican minister, and his mother was a godly Christian woman who faithfully catechized her 19 children. He was an ordained minister himself, and he was a part of what was known as the Holy Club, with people like his brother Charles and the great evangelist and, um, George Whitfield. The Holy Club, whose members were methodically devoted. Do you see what I did there? Methodist, methodically. Some of you church history buffs got that. Thank you for the courtesy laugh. Uh, who methodically devoted themselves to prayer and to the study of the Greek New Testaments. He prayed for an hour each day. He took communion each week. He fasted twice a week, and he served the diseased and the downtrodden throughout London and the surrounding areas. He was even a missionary to colonial Georgia in the 1700s. Yet he knew despite the veneer of religiosity, he knew he had a fundamental problem. And he wrote in his journal in January 24th of 1738, he wrote these words. I went to America to convert the Indians. Oh, but who shall convert me? Who, what is, the, uh, what is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of unbelief? 
You see, John Wesley knew he had a fundamental problem, a problem that he couldn't do enough, he couldn't love enough, he couldn't serve enough to ensure his place in the kingdom of God, even though when you looked um, around, you would say he most definitely has a place in the kingdom of God. But he knew that when there were times in his life where his death was in, uh, in danger, he knew that he could not save himself for etern from eternal sin and death. As we turn to Mark chapter 12, it introduces us to a man who is a lot like John uh, Wesley, a scribe. And the scribes in the, Old, in the New Testament were professors of the law, a.k.a. the Torah. They were teachers of the commandments of God. They were moralists who told and instructed the Israel how they should live. And they were also civil lawyers about how the word of God is to be applied in Israel. And they held a place of great reverence and great honor in Israel. In the synagogues, it was the scribes who sat in the front row, even though our front row doesn't apparently look like a place of honor because nobody wants to sit there, maybe the back rows. Um, but we, in the synagogues, it was the scribes who sat in the fr front row in the places of honor. And like uh, judges today, when a scribe would enter a room, the people would stand because they had so much honor and so much reverence. And so now we find this man of religious clout and religious honor is coming to Jesus to inquire of the wisdom and he receives an answer from Jesus he wasn't expecting. Jesus tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, this morning I want you to learn this. My big idea is simply this. Wait for it. There it is. Unless our religion shows our need for Christ, it keeps us from the kingdom. Let me repeat that. Unless our religion shows us our need for Christ, it keeps us from the kingdom. Jesus is uh, speaking with the scribes, and the, uh, they ask him about what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? Now, this uh, was not a trap for Jesus. This scribe had been um, following Jesus from afar and listening to these conversations. His answers to the Pharisees who said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And he heard his answer to the, the Sadducees about the resurrection. And now he sees that Jesus is a great man of power and strength and theological wisdom and he comes to him as one uh, expert on the law of God to another and he asks him a common question of the day what do you think the greatest commandment is greatest commandment because there are 613 different commands in the Old Testament 365 prohibitions and 248 positive commands. And so often what the rabbis would do is they would ask each other, what is the greatest command? 
what is the command that if you take it all, this game of Jenga, if you will, what is the command that if you take it out, all the other commands will come down because they are sitting on this? What best sums up God's law? What is the fundamental premise of the law which all the commandments depend? And Jesus was ready, which comes as no surprise as we've been reading through the book of Mark. And he answers in verses 29 and verse 30. Jesus answers, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus cites the most well-known verse in the Old Testament for pious Jews, the Shema, literally here. And this verse, the Shema, that Zachary read for us this morning, is a verse that has been recited every morning and every evening by faithful Jews ever since Old Testament time. It's a creedal statement that is more that is as important to Judaism that then uh, is as important to Judaism as the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed is to New Testament Christianity. So when Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment by quoting the Shema, Jesus is emphasizing that there is only one God. And he has a rightful claim on every aspect of our being. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your whole self. But Jesus says this one true God, and there is only one, and we're to love him, to love this God. He shows us by citing this commandment how we're to love him four ways. Uh, with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. He, by citing a heart is that loving the Lord begins inside, in your innermost being. Where the heart is the spring, where your feelings, your emotion, your desires, and your passions pour forth. How many times have you done something and you, you didn't do it really well? And when somebody asks you about it, you say, my heart just wasn't in it. What did you mean? You mean it meant that you were not investing yourself fully into what you're doing. You only gave the task or the person or whatever a fraction of your attention, of your energy, uh, your energy, your capabilities towards the task. But when you give your heart to someone or something, you pour everything into it. Your feelings, your emotions, you, your desires, all of yourself, a.k.a. your heart. You pour your heart into your task, your job, this relationship. You pour yourself into it. The greatest commandment says, love the Lord with all your heart. Then it continues and said, with all your soul. And all of these categories, they're not all real um, separated. They overlap one another. But the soul is the motivating power of life that brings strength to your will. That very life that has been breathed in by the, by the breath of God Himself. And the call to love God with all your soul is to make Him the motivating factor in all your life. Pursue His purposes. Love what He loves. Despise what He hates. 
To love God with your soul is to, compl- um, is to put all of your energy and your strength into pursuing God and your mind. Loving God is not just an emotional experience or a flurry of activities that you do, but it's a devotion. It's a devotion to shape your thinking according to the will of God, not to the patterns and the principles and the paradigms of this world. We're called to love the God by renewing our minds according to the Word of God, to let the mind of God and the will of God shape and form like clay in a mold according to the will of God. We're called to love the Lord with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. Our physical capacity guided and directed by our heart and our soul and our mind. Loving God is not just an internal feeling, that little, uh, those feelings that you get down your spine. Ooh, I love Jesus. But it's not just internal, but it's an outward devotion of all of you. Your soul, your mind, and your strength, your body, even your possessions, all of you. Ocean Park, the call to love the Lord is the call to love God wholly and completely. Not a single aspect of your being is exempt from the love of the one true God. We're not called to love God with some of us all of the time or all of ourselves some of the time. The greatest commandment declares that the one true God, the one that is uh, only one that is worthy of our praise, maker of all that is good and beautiful and true, demands all of us all the time. Our heart, our strength, our mind, and our strength. Everything we are devoted to the one true God. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually gives the scribe more than he asked for and more than he expected. He continues to notice in verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus cites another well-known verse, uh, and he says this is the second greatest commandment, Leviticus 19.18, to emphasize that when we love God, it's not in isolation from the rest of our relationships. We must love our neighbor. And Jesus doesn't define our neighbor in a narrow sense as maybe the Old Testament Jews defined our neighbors as just ethnic Jews. And Jesus says our neighbors are not just the ones that look like us and act like us and think like us and vote like us. Our neighbors are anyone who bears the image of God like us. Now, that includes our friends, but it also includes our enemies. Love your neighbors. Love your enemies. To love those who are politically like-minded and and our political opponents. We're to love the fellow citizens of our nation and to love illegal immigrants. We're called to love our generation and the generations before us and the generations that follow after us. We're called to love those who are easy to love and those people that we honestly cannot stand to be around. We're called to love those who are kind. We're also called to love the jerks. All of you exempted from that, right? 
We're called to love people who have the same religious convictions as we, are, we, we do. And we're called to love those who despise our faith. Loving our neighbor is not optional. Nor is it to be done begrudgingly. You must love your neighbor like you would want your neighbor to love yourself and how you love yourself. To love your neighbor, you must act and desire the same good welfare and flourishing for your neighbor that you desire for yourself. Like loving God, loving your neighbor is comprehensive and includes your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. And Jesus, when he brings these out, in verse 31, he says, there is no command that is greater than these two. There is really no record ever before that these two commandments have been fused together in such a way, and no other combination so perfectly reflects the will of God. To love God is to love your neighbor, and to love your neighbor is to love God. You cannot claim to love God and not love your neighbor. You cannot love your neighbor without loving God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. You cannot divide the two without destroying the two. In verse 32 and verse 33, the scribe hears this and he is blown away. The scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This scribe, this expert of the law, this professor of God's word is delighted with Jesus' answer. And the irony of this is that this scribe understands Jesus' teaching better than the disciples up to this point. The scribe recognizes the genius of Jesus' answers because Jesus affirms that there is just one true God, and Jesus affirms that God is worthy of our love and our worship, our duty and our devotion. uh, Jesus affirms that we must reflect God's righteousness and our love for God by how we love our neighbor. The scribe who had devoted his life to the law of God, was able to recognize that loving God and loving your neighbor was more important than external behavior. What you do on the outside. How people perceive you. Why? Because genuine religion, or as James says, pure and undefiled religion, Genuine religion is not a matter of outside, but it's a matter of your heart. Rituals are meaningless unless they are combined with a genuine love for God. Offerings, whether it be in the Old Testament, an offering of a lamb or a bird or money in a plate or your time during the week, are worthless if we exploit and we ignore and we hurt our neighbor. The scribe realized it and he loved it. And it's the essence of the law. Not rituals, not ceremonies, not sacrifices, not whatever it is, whether it be Jewish or Catholic or Baptist, 
We don't think we have rituals as Baptists, but they're unwritten rules that we have to do. But Jesus wasn't finished. Jesus shows his authority to the scribe, who is authority of God's word. Notice verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom. On January 30th, 2000, um, Titans wide receiver Kevin Dyson caught a pass across the middle from Steve McMahon. And there were six seconds left on the clock, and um, Dyson sprinted towards the wide-open end zone until he was met abruptly by the Rams linebacker Mike Jones. One yard short of the end zone. In a lifetime of Super Bowl glory. Much to my delight and fellow Jaguar fans, the Titans were not far from winning the Super Bowl. But the problem, as you can see, is not far is too far. And almost there is not there. When Jesus says, you, my friend, expert of the law, honored and religious, and compared horizontally, no, yeah, horizon, horizontally to everybody else, you are worthy of the kingdom. And Jesus looks at him and says, you are not far from the kingdom. Do you see that? Do you see what Jesus is saying? Do you see the genius of Jesus' words? The honored and respected professor of the Torah who teaches God law, who judges morality, who decides civil matters is not far from the kingdom. These are words of encouragement. His ability to listen to Jesus has set him apart than all the other religious leaders at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's on the right track. The kingdom of God is so close, like Kevin Dyson was so close to what would have been the tying and then the go-ahead touchdown. But the scribe is far. Not only, he's not, or he's not far, but there's a warning in these words. Though he is light years ahead of everybody else, Though comparatively he might get it better and love God better and love his neighbors better, he hasn't gone far enough. Because if he stays where he is, he is not safe in the kingdom. He's safe outside. He's not safe outside the kingdom. His own ability and his own righteousness and his own efforts, like John Wesley, are simply not enough. Ocean Mark, there are a lot of religions in this world that promise you the kingdom of God. And they might say it differently. They'll say do much humanitarian work and get a special knowledge, uh, keep the sacraments, make a decision, walk an aisle, uh, fulfill the five pillars, embrace the four noble truths. But if we trust these empty promises, we will perish far away from the kingdom. Even in Christianity, in Baptist's world, 
If we attempt to be moral and righteous and good enough, if we follow all the rules and the laws and the ceremonies, we will miss the kingdom because we're trying to serve the Lord without engaging our hearts. And what Jesus is telling us is that Christ has, uh, Jesus reveals that there is only one way that, re- that leads to the kingdom. To love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if I wanted to get you to love everybody better and be more faithful and get better attendance and maybe kick up the giving a little bit, I would push these hard. This is what you have to do. But here's the problem. This is what Jesus is leading us. You can't do these. You cannot Love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you cannot love your neighbors yourself on your own. Like this scribe, like John Wesley, like you fill in the blank of the most holy person you know, whether on TV that you've seen or that you know personally, we can't do this on our own. The noble scribe, scribe could not love the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind. He, Wesley, each one of us, no matter how hard we try, if we trust our own ability, even the right path, we will perish not far from the kingdom. Psalm 130 that we have been singing and that we have... There, that was beautiful, wasn't it? Let's go back, Chris, for me. Out of the depths, the psalmist says, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for what? Mercy. And for those of you who know, mercy is not getting what we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve to stay outside the kingdom because we have not loved the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, even though we may try really, really hard. And the psalmist says, made to be read responsively, if you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, our shortcomings, our failures, who could stand? The reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, none of us, none of us can stand. Our best efforts, even on the right path, can never save us. And as we said, why we desperately need a Savior. But here, and this is the, that's the bad news of the gospel. We can't do it. We can't keep the law. We can't fulfill it. The law is profitable because why? It shows us the righteousness of God and it shows us how we have fallen short and that we need a Savior. But rather than trying to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and try harder, like um, the little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, or think I can, or Boxer, the horse from Animal Farm, who says, I will work harder, and it destroys him. We can't do it. We need a Savior. And the good news says, we haven't done it, and we can't do it, but Jesus has. Jesus has perfectly loved the Father with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind and strength. And Jesus has loved his neighbor perfectly on our behalf. 
And this is the good news that I want you to know, is that when you trust in Jesus, there is a Savior who says, Jesus has fulfilled these commands perfectly on our behalf. And when you say, Lord, I am a sinner, save me, you are uniting yourself to Jesus in saying, when you stand before the Almighty Judge, who, uh, who there are, is no hidden... Uh, um, hidden alibis there are no hung juries there are no outstanding evidence when all the truth is told we cannot stand before the almighty god but we unite ourselves to jesus who has perfectly obeyed these commandments on our behalf and so when the father looks at us he doesn't see us he sees jesus who has loved the lord and his neighbor as himself fulfilling the righteousness of the law. And then what happens is uh, those who have united to, to, by faith, who have been born again, now have the Holy Spirit of God that's been deposited in them, and now we can love the Lord with all our heart and soul and strength, and we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Though imperfect, imperfectly this side of creation, there will be a day in the new heavens and the new earth where we will be able to and will not be able to sin. And as the hymn writer says, what a glorious day it will be. But what God does is says he takes our heart of stone that cannot obey these commandments and he gives us a heart transplant. He gives us a new heart that is able to love the Lord and love our neighbor as ourselves. And though on this side of eternity we still have sin and we will fall short, we're able to do this because we're united to Christ by faith. Ocean Park, I ask you this morning, what are you trusting to get into the kingdom? Is it your goodness? Is it your biblical knowledge that you can win a sword drill against the best of seminary professors out there? For those of you who don't know what sword drills are, when you're a kid, you hold your Bible up in the air and you say, Hezekiah 432, and you scramble around for it and you find it. And for those of you who are really smart, you know there is no Hezekiah uh, 4 or 1, 2, or 3. Uh, but your knowledge, are you trusting your goodness? Are you trusting your knowledge? Are you trusting your charity? Are you trusting your church attendance? Have you made a mold in the pew and said, this is my righteousness, I'm always here? Is it your morality? Is it your voting records? I only vote for this party or this, uh, this uh, issue or this. Is it your religious activities? Is it your reputation? Or is it Jesus? Do you confess, Lord, I've sinned in thought, word, and deed. I have not loved the Lord with my heart and soul and mind, and I have not loved my neighbor of self. I desperately need a Savior. I am yours. Save me. When Psalm 130 talks about crying out for the mercy of God, mercy has come, and his name is Jesus. And he has fulfilled and done what we could not do, and he has given us his righteousness. And he has deposited in our spirit, and we now belong to Jesus. And it is Jesus who is able to take us from far and near uh, but nevertheless, outside the kingdom. And it's Christ who brings us in. And it is Christ who is the only reason that we belong in heaven.
Because unless your religion shows your need for Christ, it keeps you from the kingdom. John Wesley, after his return from his mission trip in America, was a broken man. He had no peace, he had no joy, and as he later wrote in his journals and recognized he had no faith. On that return trip, there was a great storm, but there was a group of Moravian believers who assured him that faith was a gift of God that is bestowed on every soul that earnestly and preservingly sought it. God was working in John Wesley's heart. He wrote in a journal that day, I was now thoroughly convinced, and by the grace of God, I resolved to seek it, to seek that faith until the end. But he was still not converted. Later that day, he wrote, he was read, or later that day, or he was reading his Bible, and he haphazardly opened his Bible, and it fell open to Mark chapter 12, verse 34, our text this morning, that said, you are not far from the kingdom. And the words of Jesus reassured him. He went to St. Paul's Cathedral uh, for afternoon uh, for the Vespers service in London, where the words of Psalm 30 echoed through the rafters the promises of the mercies of God for all who recognize their inability, but Christ's ability. Lord, from the depths I cry to you, Lord, hear me from on high, and give attention to my voice when I for mercy cry. The Holy Spirit through his word was drawing John Wesley to himself. Later on, he wrote that evening, he didn't write that. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to the Societies for Aldergate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle of the, to the Romans. And about quarter before nine, when he was describing the change with God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt... I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he has taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley gave up trying to save himself and threw himself on the mercies and the grace of God, which is expressed through the person and work of Jesus. Ocean Park, I pray that you do the same. Like the words of Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your self-centeredness, your self-reliance, and your self-pity, and believe in the gospel that Christ has come to save you from your sin and make you like him. Because unless your religion, Ocean Park, shows you your need for Christ, it keeps you from the kingdom of God. Do you trust Jesus? The first time and every day.
repent and believe? Or will you continue to trust what you do and remain not far from the kingdom? Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. A people that in thought, word, and deed, we have failed to love you, O King. And we have failed to love our neighbor. We desperately need a Savior. Today and tomorrow. Father, I pray that each day we will repent and believe. Stop trying to do it on our own merit, our own strength, our own morality. Lay down our efforts and throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus, where the mercy and the grace of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ, who loved the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and loved his neighbor as himself. I pray that every one of us would trust Jesus. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.